Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. Uh, This is a show where we are exploring what it takes to make change in a country that is as divided as our country has become. Now, look, it's no secret I am a man of deep faith. You know, I I take my faith seriously. Uh, It's really where I find community. It's where I find my home. And recently... I've noticed something, which is that I think more and more people are feeling alone. They're feeling that they don't have community. They don't have a home. Uh, More people are feeling isolated. And I wonder, is there some connection between the old faiths, warts and all, breaking down and people feeling more adrift? People feeling that they don't have a community at all. But you know what? There are people who see it the other way. There are people who actually are glad <laughs> that America is becoming more secular, who think that religion has caused more problems than it could ever solve, and think that we'd be better off with fewer people going to church and, and more people doing other things. One of those people is Sam Harris. He is a neuroscientist. He's an author. He's a podcaster. His first book, The End of Faith, outlines this clash between religion and reason in the modern world. Simply put, he is not a fan of religion, <laughs> and uh, he thinks there's a value in some kinds of spirituality, but he takes a deep issue with the way that religious folks like me see the world. And he thinks the world would be a better place if we replace religion altogether with rationality. Dogmatism is always an intellectual sin in science and in, you know, and, and, and in an actual ethical debate about facts in the world or the real effects on the happiness and suffering of other human beings. I mean, that is when you say, well, listen, this is just the dogma I'm going to not evaluate, you sound like a maniac, except in a religious context where you're saying this this part of my belief system, the most important part, is off the table. And so I want to talk with him because this is one of those divides in our country that we often don't talk about enough. And I think this is one of my toughest interviews because we just see things so differently. But at the end of the day, I do deeply believe he's trying to figure out, just like I am, what does it mean to live a good life? How can our society be better? How can we all be more ethical? I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, he's trying to figure that out. So even though our answers might be different, you know, they're coming from the same basic set of questions, which means it's worth sitting down and talking to him and people like him, uh, no matter what side of that divide you're on, and listening and trying to figure out where we can find common ground. I'm very excited for you to hear this conversation that I had with Sam Harris. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Brother Sam Harris, how are you doing, brother? Hey, man. Good to see you, finally. I think I wanted to do this with you uh, years ago, so or at least pre-COVID. Well, we finally got a chance to do it now. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because, I mean, people are really, I think, in a world of hurt right now. We've got crisis on top of crisis wrapped up in crisis, deep fried in some more crisis. It's just really, really the external environment is so difficult with the pandemic, with war, with shootings, with ecological despair. And I think a lot of people are, are needing to and wanting to turn within. And... I'm a person of faith, grew up in the black church, as most uh, African Americans of my generation uh, did. So when I turn within, I go to my prayers. I think when you turn within, you maybe go to your meditation. But we're, we're both turning within. I wanted to talk with you because, A, I, I, th- I think that the Uncommon Ground community could benefit from your wisdom and knowledge about where and how to find some peace, some equanimity on the one hand. And I also think that a big factor in some of the social unrest is the fact that the country is going from being more faith-based to being more secular. And that process is also creating some upset and some drama. So since you're one of the foremost atheists in the country, <laughs> you can talk about that secularization process. And because you're one of the more foremost spiritual leaders, I guess is, is a term that has been implied to you, you can talk about the other process. So that's why I want to talk to you. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Yeah, we're uh, for better or worse, we're somewhere near my wheelhouse here. So well, good. Well, let's just you know start at the beginning. I mean, I think you came onto the scene with uh, your your book, your kind of mega bestseller, "The End of Faith." Uh, that was two thousand and five. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And uh, as a result, people started calling you one of the leaders of the new atheist movement. Is that a term that you like? Or is that a term that you kind of embrace? Is that a weird term to you? Are you a part? Are you a leader of the new atheist movement? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not a a current term that I, I think about much. But uh, it, it really it named mostly just a publishing phenomenon back in 2004, 5, 6, 7, when a bunch of us had bestsellers that were on this theme, uh, the theme of the clash as we saw it between reason and faith or science and religion. And my thinking really hasn't changed, except I was always, I mean, we, we were treated, me and, and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Dan Dennett, more or less as a kind of a four-headed 
person, right? And, and that ignored many of the, the differences between us. We were united in feeling that belief without evidence, uh, and certainly certainty without evidence, is intrinsically dangerous, and that there really is only one area of human culture where that kind of certainty is celebrated as opposed to derided or criticized, um, and that is organized religion. So so we're, we're, we're on the same page there. But I've always been very interested in the the far end of the the positive continuum of human experience which includes what we would generally call spirituality right states of mind like self-transcendence or unconditional love and and it, in my view it captures everything that people want and are right to want in religion right and it certainly ca- captures the the psychological and social phenomenon that gave rise to the world's religion so when you ask yourself just what kind of person was Jesus that he could have had that effect on so many people you know, in, in his direct contact, you know, while alive, or Buddha, or any of the other, you know, matriarchs or patriarchs of of any faith? There's a psychological phenomenon. There's a social phenomenon there that I think we want to understand, and we want. I think we want to actualize it personally. I would just argue that that at this point in human history, in the, in the 21st century, sectarian organized parochial religion is not the way to do that. And perhaps we can talk about that. But I, I, I absolutely share your concern for this moment in you know, human history and in American history in particular, where we're, we're dealing with a massively fragmented society. There's a fundamental unmooring with respect to the, the, the deepest questions in life, the existential questions around what it means to live a good life. How do we shore up community of diverse strangers effectively? How do we have common projects? How do we make sure that the, that the whole human project is one of truly open-ended cooperation and collaboration uh, rather than just further fragmentation and violence? I mean, these are all questions that I, that I think unite everybody. I just would argue that we only have human conversation by which to navigate these apparent impasses. And what I would urge upon us is that we avail ourselves of all of the best ideas in human history without regard to tradition, certainly without regard to, you know, any kind of real tribalism and sectarianism. So for instance, for, for someone to say, well, I'm a Christian, and that is my ground truth, ethically, spiritually, epistemologically, and I'm, it's, it's non-negotiable, right? There's no evidence or argument I want to hear that puts any of my core beliefs into doubt. And for, for Muslims to do likewise, and for, for Hindus to do likewise, and all of them have at bottom, you know, some similar claims, but also at bottom, when you're really going to get into the sectarian claims, truly ir- irreconcilable differences. So insofar as you, you pu- push deeper into those certainties, the basis for conflict never evaporates. And, so, and, the, and the basis for real collaboration that's truly open-ended for us at this point is to acknowledge that there are deeper principles at work here that have to be understood in 21st century terms, and we need a human conversation that uses the best ideas, whatever their provenance. You know, I I love Jesus and half his moods, and if you're going to say, what about the golden rule or what about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to love those passages. But at no point is it required to believe that he's going to be coming back to judge the living and the dead or, you know, rapture the good people. That's where I think we need to get off the ride. And yet the baby in the bathwater of religion can absolutely be saved because, again, self-transcendence, unconditional love, these are real possibilities of our minds. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. As a person of faith, I don't recognize my own experience in your your story. I don't mean 
about the tenets of my own faith, I mean about people's ability to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, according to you, if you know people are you know strong Christian like myself and strong Muslim and a strong that we can't work together, and that's just not been my experience. In fact, my experience has been quite the opposite. That the people who I've been able to be most effective working with have been a different than me. B often uh, motivated by their own religion uh, and religious faith on the left and the right. And we've got a lot of stuff done. And so I, I think part of the challenge is that one can be sectarian in their non-sectarianism, <laughs> uh, I, I would imagine, if other stories don't get, don't get to play out. So for instance, you know, for me, it's because I'm a Christian and believe that you know, how we treat the least of these, uh, as Jesus said, is how we're going to be judged that I was especially interested in working with incarcerated people, homeless people, uh, the addicted, the afflicted, the convicted. And I found in doing that work that I crossed paths with a lot more conservative Christians in that work, a lot more Muslims (laughs) uh, in that work, a lot more Buddhists, frankly, (laughs) in that work, that there is a place where people of faith can work on really tough problems together and make real progress. I think that's one of the things that I'm, I'm just curious about. Like for you, you know, someone like, you know, a Dr. King, who really you can't separate what his contribution to Western civilization from his faith, or a Malcolm X. I mean, how do those people land for you? And, and would you have those same concerns if Dr. King were still around and you had a chance to work with him? And just how does this play out in real life? Yeah, so ju- just to be clear, I, I'm not denying that interfaith cooperation is possible. I mean, obviously that that's mm-hmm. true. And I'm not denying that people aren't occasionally or even frequently motivated to do good things on the basis of their religious beliefs. That's clearly true, right? So that, all of that's indisputable. I mean, there's a few uh, things that confuse this issue. One is that when you survey history and even the present, most people are people of faith, right? So when you're talking about you know people doing anything, you're talking about mostly people believe, who believe in God are doing those things, good, good or good or bad, right? So it would be accurate to say that basically every bridge that has been built and every hospital that's been built and every road that's been paved, et cetera, et cetera, has been done mostly by people of faith. Now, that doesn't suggest that faith is required to do those things. It's just suggests that there's been nobody else to do the job. There's no, I wouldn't conclude anything really on that basis. What I would argue is that, yes, while people are occasionally motivated to do wonderful things on the basis of their faith, faith, generally speaking, provides bad reasons to do good things when good reasons are actually available, right? So it's one thing to go to Africa to help, you know, in in a volunteer organization to feed people in refugee camp, you know, during a famine, say, because you think Jesus will reward you in the the afterlife, etc., because it's an expression of your Christianity. It's another thing to do those things simply because you care about other human beings, you know, simply motivated by compassion without any metaphysics associated with it. And I would argue that that latter motivation is possible and more desirable in the end because it doesn't come with any attendant ideological baggage. And the problem with ideological baggage, the problem with dogmatism, is you can never be sure what harm it's going to cause. I mean, you you can take the most benign-seeming dogma and it can suddenly surprise you. Do, do you think dogmatism is only available to people who are people of faith? I mean, in other words, I agree with you. Dogmatism is terrible. Fundamentalism is terrible. But I see dogmatism and fundamentalism in secular parts of our society as well. And I see, frankly, an open-mindedness in communities of faith as well. 
And I wonder if in your concern, and I think well-grounded concern for abuses of faith and for fundamentalism, you don't over-focus on some of the downsides of fundamentalism when it comes to people of faith and overlook a bunch of other dogmatism. We got dogmatism all over the place, don't we? Well, no, what we don't have is any other area of culture where dogma is a good word, right? Dogmatism is always an intellectual sin in science and in, you know, and, and, and in an actual ethical debate about facts in the world or the real effects on the happiness and suffering of other human beings. I mean, that is, when you say, well, listen, this is just the dogma I'm going to not evaluate, you sound like a maniac except in a religious context where you're saying this this part of my belief system, the most important part, is off the table. It's the changing of the rules of honest, self-reflective, self-critical conversation that I object to. And it, it, does, it is a, a fundamentally different game to leave everything open to evidence and argument. And that's why it's, it's self-correcting, and it's correcting by the antagonism of other people, right? Like if you, so if you can say something that is so clearly right in this conversation, that it puts one, one of my cherished beliefs in check, if I'm not available to being persuaded by you, and I just double down and triple down in the face of that pushback, well, yeah, maybe I'm so self-deceived that I can walk away from this conversation satisfied with how I played my end of it, but in front of your audience, I'm going to look like a moron, right? I mean, that's what it is to be not actually responsive to a good argument and good evidence, right? Can, can, I, can I suggest that you're making a claim that's almost religious right now in that you are of a particular belief about human nature, debate, discourse, rationality. I see very little evidence that the world works in the way you just described. Well, no, again, we're going to agree about how unusual it is, certainly in politics, to see people reason honestly, right? But, but intellectual honesty is still an ideal that we hold to, right? And when, when, when we see somebody like Trump come on the scene and lie about everything, right, and pay no price for it among his own tribe, right, that is so galling because it's such a violation not only of what should be possible, but it's, it's a violation of the mechanisms we recognize that guarantee cooperation and collaboration. I mean, the only thing that guarantees that our conversation is truly open-ended and can remain a conversation and can remain civil, right? The only, the, it is the possibility of persuading other people on the basis of facts and arguments. Otherwise, there's just an appeal to force at, at the end of the day. Or, or, or love. That's the other, the other thing is that there's, there's reason, there's violence, and then there's love. Well, I lo love is even setting a higher bar there, right? I mean, so yeah, love, uh, I'm not discounting the importance of love, but when you're talking about people on two sides of an argument, on two sides of a table, who, and they're trying to figure out how to move forward. I mean, this is, morality for us really is generally a question, collectively and even individually, of what to do next, right? What yes. should we do? What can we do? What can we agree to possibly do? And there we have conversation. And yes, I mean, put, put as much love in there as you, can, as you can smuggle in, by all means. But when you have you know, 340 million strangers, effectively, in a country trying to figure out what to do next. We need to be able to talk to each other. And the most shocking pathologies we see, I would argue, are, forget about the, the, the problem of theocracy and religion uh, per se, there's a, there's a similar style of thinking that affects 
affects everything else in our politics. And, and when you look at you know, crazy conspiracy thinking, right? When you look at QAnon, when you look at how we can't even have a, a conversation about vaccines because there's so much disagreement about basic facts and so much spinning of facts and then noble lies told in the face of crazy conspiracy theories hoping to do some good and then that, those get exposed and then you, ha- you have trust in institutions bottoming out. We need to default somehow to honest conversation. And I'm not, so I'm not saying, it's an, it's an ideal. It's absolutely an ideal that is broken, you know, every minute of every day in our public discourse, but we, we still recognize it as an ideal. And that's, that's what I'm arguing for. I have less confidence than you, or less, for lack of a better term, less faith than you in rationality. Because in the experience of my family and my community, um, there are a lot of rational people who were able to rationalize slavery, segregation, et cetera. And you had a stalemate there. There are questions around, you know, should uh, slave owners be paid reparations if they, when they lost their slaves? I mean, because, hey, listen, you know, property rights, et cetera. So rationality, I look at with less confidence than you do because I've seen rationality also misfire. And what I have seen um, also quite miraculously is the irrational sometimes went out in a good way. In other words, love is very irrational. <laughs> and, you know, Dr. King and Ella Jo Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer, there was a way that there was a leap beyond the rational into something else that opened the doors to freedom for, you know, people who I uh, and you care a lot about. Now, you're right to say, well, that you don't need you know, theocracy for that. You don't need theology for that. You can, but the way that we articulated that, which is why it's dear to me, was that we took the dead letters of the Constitution and a Bible that somebody had handed us, and we used both. We used the, the legal arguments of the Constitution, especially the amendments, and we also found in faith that had been handed to us, and not our faith, a way out of no way. We didn't march out of shopping centers to move the country. We marched out of church houses, and we were singing church songs. And there was some power in that that's hard to explain. But I think if we had marched out of shopping centers or libraries, I think somehow we would have had less success. For me, there's a beauty to a gospel song. There's a, there's a genius to Howard Thurman reinterpreting the gospels to dignify enslaved people. There's a, a genius and a beauty and a wisdom and a magic there that I worry gets thrown away and then replaced with nothing except for meditation and reason. And I, I worry about the loss to the human family of that. I wonder if you want to have the last word on this point and then we can move on. Does, 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 my, does my concern resonate with you in any way? I, mean, I, I, I share your appreciation for much of culture that is religiously inspired. And I'm not disputing the power of certain ideas to motivate social movements, right? So yes, marching out of a church is different from marching out of a shopping mall, right? But I would uh, challenge your assertion that love is irrational. Love is one of our most valuable experiences, arguably the most valuable experience, right? And it is totally rational to want more of it in your life and to, to want to see more of it effective in the world. And I, in fact, I would say that reason, rightly construed, is the guardian of love. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. 
Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link. <laughs> that sounds adventurous. Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want. the size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E10+. Games and systems sold separately. Well, look, I, I want to move to just some of the other things that you know a lot about. You know, there is this sort of light at the crossroads now of science and spirituality, for lack of a better term. The power of meditation, the importance of it, psychedelics, there are certain states of mind, there are certain states of being that are transcendent for people, that are healing for people, that make it more possible for us to have a human civilization that is worthy of either word. Right now, I'm sure, not sure that the human civilization we have is, is very human or very civilized. But, um, you know, there is this pathway that's lighting up where I think science and spirituality are coming together. Uh, what's, what's the most exciting for you right now in that conversation? Well, I, th- I think the, um, again, I'm, I'm really focused on questions like, what does it mean to live a good life? You know, and what does it mean to be, be a good person? And there, there are many levels at which we have to answer that question. There's not just one level. And, and meditation for me is a, a very important piece. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about over at Waking Up, the meditation app. When you're going to talk about the personal level of just what, what is the difference between happiness and suffering personally in any moment, so much of that is a matter of, of uh, the, this difference between being lost in thought and not, right? And until you learn how to meditate, until you learn to ha- how to actually pay attention to the flow of your own thoughts, you can't, that's not even a difference you can notice. You are just going to, by default, be lost in thought. You're going to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. I mean, it's just so much of your your experience of the world is captured by this conversation you're having with yourself, and so so you know your your regret and your anxiety and your disappointment and you know all it's just it's all anchored to this automaticity which goes uninspected. And when you when you look at it closely enough, and you can wake up from your this identification with thought, then another degree of freedom opens to you. I mean, you you can honestly ask yourself, well, how long do I want to be angry for, right? You know, something will happen in the world. You'll have a thought, and the feeling of anger will get kindled. And for most people, they will simply stay, they'll they'll stay as angry as they're going to stay for as long as they're going to stay that way, and it's completely haphazard. They're waiting for something in the world to change, or they they just have to live with the half-life of this emotion. But once you know how to actually be mindful of your thoughts, you know, i.e. meditate, you can get off the ride whenever you want, and you can notice that anger has a very short half-life. I mean, it's, it's actually impossible to stay angry for more than a few seconds 
unless you rekindle it again by, by, by thinking about all the reasons why you have every right to be angry. And so we, we have to learn how to pay attention to the most important problems. But again, I, I, I think we, we should want to use all of human ideas, the best of them, whether they come from the Bible or the Quran or from uh, you know, the latest scientific conference, to orient ourselves toward a future where we find a, a truly durable basis and, and flexible basis for collaboration. And again, I think, I think rationality and intellectual honesty on the one hand and love on the other are the guardrails for us, right? I mean, we just, we need a positive orientation toward one another and the future. We have to recognize that there, there's no zero-sum conflict between wise selfishness and selflessness, right? Because wise selfishness, if you're really going to get selfish, if you're really going to try to figure out how to be happy in this world where everybody dies eventually, that entails, that project entails, at bottom, self-transcendence. It, it, it entails waking up from the, the dream of, of narcissism and self-concern and finding a world in which you really want other people to be happy too, right? It's not all about you. It's not even mostly about you in the end. So we have to escape ourselves. We have to escape this, this tractor beam pull of selfishness and self-concern in every, in every moment, really. And we can do that. I agree with you, and, and you have a way to do it, and I do as well. I mean, when I, I, I'd love to see me and you in a, a black church with a big gospel choir around us. I think we, I'll, I'll, I'll put that right next, right next to the mushrooms <laughs> in terms of, of self transcendence. If you add those two things together, I'm sure it'd be quite an experience. Amen. <laughs> be quite an experience. Um, look, I, um, uh, my, my last question is just, you know, there's, there's a decline of religion and religiosity, which you know gives us some advantages. But there also, there seems to be a loss of community uh, or, or, or meaning or, or something. And then, therefore, knock-on effect, maybe more anxiety, mental health. As we jump off of one structure that um, was imperfect, but you, at least you had some, some meaning, you had some, some community, you had weekly rituals, you had you know, stuff that your parents did and your grandparents did, something. As we burn that down, as it, you do get some freedom. But there's also a loss of something else. And there's a, uh, do you see a link between this rise of anxiety and mental health and the decline of these institutions? I mean, how, how, does, it, how does it all play out in your mind? Well, I, I think the bigger piece is a, a fundamental breakdown of trust in institutions. I mean, I think that's even bigger than this loss of community, which I also worry about. And that, that's a kind of a subset problem. I think our inability to talk about anything important now without getting plunged into conspiracy thinking and just obvious delusion, right? And, and, and the way in which social media amplifies the worst in us, right? And it's just every, all the incentives are wrong. And the mainstream media can't seem to course correct in light of the, you know, a failing business model that still relies on clicks. It's really pernicious. And, I, and I, it is what is fragmenting community to a large degree because it, it used to be, I mean, when you lived all your life in, in the, quote, real world, you know, the brick and mortar world, you know, you could only spin out so far without the people around you growing concerned and, and without you finding any support for 
your crazy infatuation. But online, you can always find 500 people who are just going to say, you go, girl, you're our kind of crazy, right? You come on, you know, come down this rabbit hole and stay here for the next decade. And you, you, when millions of people run that psychological experiment on themselves, you see the result, you know, and, and we're seeing the result every day. And if the result is shattering our politics. And obviously, you know much more about that than I do. And it's I, so I, I, I'm, I'm quite concerned about this. And, and I do think the remedy, you know, has to exist out in the real world with, you know, real community building, but it also has to exist in our reforming what we're doing online together. Because the, the thing that scales is what's happening online. I mean, people, it's easy to say that Twitter isn't real life, but increasingly it, it is, right? It incre- increasingly it determines what the New York Times does next, right? And also, even even for you know someone uh, like yourself, I, I think more people now know you for the app, for the waking up app, than for the book. So you know, I do think that you know we've got to figure out a way to use these tools for good. Yeah, and it it just because it, it's the only thing that scales. I mean, it's just you, know, you and I having this conversation. You know, like in the real world, you and I would if we decided to do an event on stage together. You know, in the best possible case, we would sell out a massive auditorium, right? Let's let's say we could sell out Madison Square Garden, right? I mean, it'd be amazing if we could do that in front of twenty thousand people. We're talking, but twenty thousand people is nothing for a podcast, right? So it's like we have to we ha- we need remedies that actually scale and change minds at scale. Well, you know, I, I think if your job is to change minds at scale, you've been doing really well. And I think this dance between all of us who are seeking within who worry about tomorrow, who really think fundamentally people and human beings can do a lot better than we're doing. They should, should just keep talking because none of us have got this thing figured out yet. And we have a long way to go if we're going to dig out of this ditch of, you know, ecological destruction, democracy decline. We've got multiple, you know, ditches that we've all fallen down, which, which you know, humble, I think, all, all of us and also discipline our efforts. So that we, you know, try to be uh, serious and we try to be sober-minded, and you know, put you at the, the top of the list of people in the country who are taking this stuff seriously and uh, leaning for it with actual uh, integrity and in trying to fix this stuff. And I greatly appreciate you. Yeah, to be continued, Van. Real, real pleasure. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. All right, that was a tough, that was a tough conversation for me, but I'm so glad that I did it. You know, I am not religious about my politics. Obviously, I'm not. You know, I work with a lot of people on the left and the right. I am religious about my religion. <laughs> and so I come out of a black church that was our only refuge. We would be worked from sunup to sundown, till can't see in the morning, till can't see at night, six days a week during the enslavement. But we would have a few hours on Sunday mornings to be together and to celebrate life and to remind each other that we mattered and that we were children of a high God and that Nobody could do anything to us that would make us less than that. And so that faith that got us through hundreds of years of brutal enslavement 
and then another hundred years of terrorism at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan and other groups is dear to me, and I know its power. And I worry that we're moving into an era where honest people can't distinguish between that kind of faith and fundamentalism. And, and yet, it's so important to have these conversations. You know, for me, progressives in particular, I think, have to figure this stuff out because the Democratic Party, just as a practical matter, wants black Christian voters like myself to stand in very long lines in every election, often brought there on church buses to vote, and they want Catholic workers to um, come out of union halls and vote for Democrats. They want black and brown Christians to respect the Democratic Party, but people in the Democratic Party too often are having a hard time respecting people of faith. And that's a big problem because we need each other. And we need to have room for each other and respect for each other. We've got to keep talking. And I have so much respect for Sam Harris. When he came out in 2005, that was not an easy conversation that he started. And uh, he's been able to carve out some more space for himself and for people who think like him that they are now a very powerful, growing force in our country. At the end of the day, I think Sam and a lot of people like him have good intentions. They're trying to figure stuff out. And if he can be on his meditation mat and I can be on my prayer mat and we both have good intentions, that's really all you can ask for. But, you know, the earth is made of stone. The world is made of stories. Some are sacred, some are secular, but they all count and they all matter. And we've got to keep sharing our stories. And that's the point of this podcast. And I appreciate you for being a part of the journey. I'm Van Jones. This is Uncommon Ground. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe. Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Swinteman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. It's winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges. They will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win $200 million. Thousands, not millions. 
$200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The GOAT, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th.